I'm Anthony Wright, and you're listening to Attunement. And my guest today is Stanislav Graf. Welcome, Stan. Well, thanks for having me. A real pleasure. Stanislav Graf, MD, PhD, is a psychiatrist with over 40 years of experience in research into non-ordinary states of consciousness induced by psychedelic substances and various non-drug techniques, and one of the founders and chief theoreticians of transpersonal psychology. He was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia, where he also received his scientific training, an MD degree from the Charles University School of Medicine, and a PhD from the Czechoslovakian Academy of Sciences. Dr. Groff's early research in the clinical uses of psychedelic substances was conducted at the Psychiatric Research Institute in Prague, where he was principal investigator of a program systematically exploring the heuristic and therapeutic potential of LSD and other psychedelic substances. In 1967, he was invited as a clinical and research fellow to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. After completion of this two-year fellowship, he stayed in the U.S. and continued his research as Chief of Psychiatric Research at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center and as Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the Henry Phipps Clinic of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. In 1973, Dr. Groff was invited to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where he lived until 1987 as a scholar-in-residence, writing, giving seminars, lecturing, and developing holotropic breathwork with his wife, Christina Groff. He also served on the Board of Trustees at the Esalen Institute. He is the founder of the International Transpersonal Association and its past and current president. In this role, he has organized large international conferences in the United States, the former Czechoslovakia, India, Australia, and Brazil. At present, he lives in Mill Valley, California, conducting training seminars for professionals in holotropic breathwork and transpersonal psychology and writing books. He is also professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco and at the Pacifica Graduate School in Santa Barbara and gives lectures and seminars worldwide. My goodness, you've been involved with this for an awfully long time. Well, it's a little over 50 years now. How did you happen to come to this kind of research from being a psychiatrist? Well, it has to do with the fact that very, very early in my career, I became interested in uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness, or actually a kind of significant subgroup of non-ordinary states uh, for which psychiatry doesn't have a name, but I gave it the name holotropic. Holos meaning moving, uh, uh, moving towards wholeness, Holos means uh, whole, and trapein, from which the, the word tropic is, means moving uh, towards something or being oriented mm-hmm. towards something. So these are uh, kind of experiences uh, that, for example, uh, are part of the uh, initiation crisis of shamans or the kinds of states that they use when they work with clients or the kind of states that... Um, are induced in native ceremonies, healing ceremonies, or rites of passage, and uh, also experiences uh, that uh, were described in the context of the ancient mysteries of death and rebirth, or experiences that happened to yogis and to people in Buddhist practice, or Taoists, or, or Sufis, or Christian, Christian mystics, and so on. And my interest in these uh, states uh, came uh, when very much, very early in my career, I um, became a volunteer for an LSD session. Uh, the Department of Psychiatry where I was working got a supply of this substance from uh, Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company in Switzerland. 
and it came with a letter where they're actually asking us, you know, we have this we have this substance that was discovered practically by accident in our laboratories by Dr. Hoffman, and uh, we feel that this could be something interesting for psychiatrists, psychologists. Uh, would you work with this substance and give us feedback, you know, whether this uh, could be something useful for psychiatry? And um, with the letter uh, came two suggestions uh, that uh, they sort of made on the basis of some of the pilot studies that they did. Um, one was that maybe um, the LSD state could be used as a kind of experimental psychosis. They, they saw that when people had LSD experiences, uh, there was some similarity to what we see in naturally occurring uh, psychosis. So they they offer this as a model, you know, that we could study, find out what's happening biochemically, what's happening physiologically, uh, electrophysiologically at the time when people have these unusual experiences, where we could uh, give it to quote unquote normal people and do all kinds of uh, you know examinations before, during, and after, and get a sense of what's happening biologically at the time when the uh, mental functioning is so profoundly influenced. And then there was another tip, another suggestion, which kind of became destiny for me. Uh, they said that they feel also that maybe this could be used as a kind of an unconventional training tool, educational tool, that psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, students would have a chance to spend a few hours in the world of their patients or world that's similar to where the patients live. And as a result of it, be able to understand them better, to be able to communicate more effectively and, and hopefully be more successful in treating them. So this looked very exciting, you know, something I wouldn't have missed for anything in the world. This was 1954. Oh, 54. Yeah. The uh, actually, actually uh, I had the first session in 1956. Uh, but 54 was when, when we first sort of uh, got the report from Sandoz that this was available. So I had such a powerful experience. Uh, you know, at the time I, I was very much involved in psychoanalysis, uh, which was the reason why I actually studied medicine, and, you know, with the explicit goal of becoming a psychoanalyst. I got very, very excited about reading, you know, reading Freud about, about his ideas. And uh, so I was in a kind of a strange place where I was still very excited about the theory of psychoanalysis, but I also became aware of the tremendous practical limitations. If you want to apply it, uh, you know, in people who have actual clinical problems, they had a very narrow uh, range of indications. You have to meet very special criteria. And uh, last but not least, you don't have, you, you have to have a lot of money. It takes, you know, enormous amount of time in the traditional psychoanalysis was three to five times a week and you don't think in terms of months but in terms of years and so I was getting very very disappointed with psychoanalysis as a practical tool and I was kind of asking the question how come that the system that seems to be able to explain everything does not you know uh, produce better results because in order to study, uh, in order to be a psychoanalyst, you have to study medicine. And if you study medicine, you find out that if you really understand the problem, you should be able to do something fairly dramatic about it. 
or if you cannot, if it's an incurable disease, you have a pretty good idea uh, why uh, you don't have success. Like with cancer, with AIDS, we know pretty much where the problem is, what would have to change. So we kind of, uh, we understand our failures. Whereas here the idea was, you know, we can explain everything, but uh, we cannot change very much, or it takes a very long time. And so um, this really um, came at a time when I started regretting that I ever uh, chosen uh, psychoanalysis and psychiatry. And it just generated this enormous interest in these non-ordinary states, you know, since I was a psychiatrist, this seemed like the most interesting thing you can do. And so for the last 50 years, I have really done very little professionally that would not be in one way or another related to these non-ordinary states. About half of this time, you know, clinical research with psychedelics per se. Uh, the second half, you know, the work with holotropic breathwork that Christina and I uh, developed. And we also did over the years a lot of work with people who had spontaneous episodes of these holotropic states, of these non-ordinary states, because we found out that uh, you actually, in many instances, you don't have to uh, stop that process by tranquilizers, that it's much more useful to actually guide people through it, that these states can be healing, transformative, evolutionary. And I'd like to come back to that, but... um before we began recording, you had talked about that you were one of the founders of the Transpersonal Psychology Association. Yes. Can you tell us about what brought that about? Well, you know, initially when uh, I started seeing what was happening to patients and also what was happening in my own uh, non-ordinary states, uh, there was a realization that most of those phenomena cannot be really accounted for by current psychiatry psychology, that these were what we would call paradigm breaking. You know, there was no way of, of assimilating these kinds of observations and experiences into the current uh, conceptual uh, frameworks. And I started talking about it with my colleagues and I very quickly realized that this was not okay, that people thought I was crazy because it was so much against anything that we had been taught at the universities and so on. And so for a number of years, I just sort of worked in Prague just with a small, small group of colleagues and just sort of, you know, uh, accumulating these, uh, these different observations and uh, creating this expanding, expanded map of uh, the psyche where these experiences would be accounted for. And uh, this was pretty much uh, how it was. You know, we were also working in a, situation where we had a Marxist regime, so we could not really report fully what was happening, particularly if it was in the realms of spiritual experiences, mystical experiences. We knew this was not acceptable in a, in a Marxist country. And so um, then I came to uh, the United States, 1967, and suddenly I had a group of, uh, it was eight of us, uh, uh, with their families, who we were all sharing this, this sort of new vision this new uh, new worldview um, and then uh, I went to Esalen to give a workshop and I talk about these things and there was Paul Herbert who was the kind of chronicler who sat in all the uh, workshops and he was uh, recording it and he told me after my uh, workshop you see what you're talking about is very much like what Ed Maslow has been 
uh, writing and talking about. Abe Maslow was a you know very famous American uh, psychologist who became specifically interested in what he called peak experiences, people having spontaneous mystical experiences, and you know studied hundreds of uh, people who had these experiences, and he came to the conclusion that. Uh, Current psychiatry is really wrong in seeing these mystical states as being uh, indications of mental disease. That mystical experiences are um, not only normal, but maybe supernormal if they are properly integrated. And he talked about things like these, can, these are conducive to self-realization, self-actualization. People become you know, more fully functioning and, and uh, more satisfied uh, individuals. And Paul Herbert saw that I described something very similar for experiences induced by psychedelics. And so he, he said, you, the two of you should meet. So I sent uh, Abe Maslow a manuscript, very, very big, that had never been, has never been published. It was called Agony and Ecstasy in Psychiatric Treatment, where I really basically summarized all the major observations. It later became five books, actually. Um, and uh, I got an invitation to come and see him in Boston. He was recovering from from a um, heart attack. It was a very interesting situation because uh, as I uh, rang the bell, uh, Bertha, his wife, came to answer the door, and I had the feeling that I was really an uh, unwanted guest. She was basically blocking sort of uh, with her body, you know, the entry into their house. And this was the first time we met, so I didn't know what, what that was about. And then finally, when we had dinner and you know things got very, very kind of friendly and uh, flowing, uh, she explained it to me. She said that when uh, Abe Maslow got my book and he started reading it and saw the parallels with his own research, that he was getting so excited that she was afraid that when the two of us get together and start talking about it, that it would be too much for his heart, that he could have another, that he could have another heart attack. Yeah. So anyway, then shortly afterwards, uh, Abe Maslow got a very, very wonderful uh, fellowship, so he could stop teaching, he could just move to California, he was given a house where he could just think and write. And uh, he invited me also to join this small circle of people who were now working uh, out the principles of a new psychology. Abe Maslow and Tony Sutich were the two people who um, actually developed uh, a, a new branch of uh, psychology called humanistic psychology. Mm-hmm. Abe Maslow called it the third force after behaviorism and, right. and Freudian analysis. But it was in 10 years of existence of humanistic psychology, although humanistic psychology became very popular. Uh, that they themselves started realizing that they left out some important dimensions, particularly the uh, spiritual dimension, the kinds of things described in uh, the Eastern philosophies, in the mystical traditions, uh, and so on. And so they felt we needed uh, yet a larger psychology. We're talking with my guest, Stan Groff. What is your website, Stan? Uh, The website is uh, www.holotropic.com, H-O-L-O, T-R-O-P-I-C dot com. We're going to have to take a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. I'm Anthony Wright, and we're talking with my guest, 
Stan Groff, and you were just talking about the establishment of transpersonal psychology in your conversation uh, with Abe Maslow, and I think my listeners will also be interested to know that you've just come out with a new book called When the Impossible Happens, where you talk about yes. a lot of your experiences. Well, that book is different from my previous books. You know, I spent these, all these years studying these non-ordinary states, and I wrote books uh, discussing the profound implications that these observations and experiences had for mm -hmm. theory of, and practice of psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, like the new insights into what I call the architecture of emotional and psychosomatic disorders and the sort of new healing mechanisms and the expanded cartography of the psyche, which uh, you don't have just the biographical level and the, the individual Freudian unconscious, but also what I call the perinatal level, where there's a record of the process of biological birth, and then a vast area that we now call transpersonal you know, experiences, where you can have sense of um, identification with other people, identification with other life forms, where you can uh, experience things from human history, have past life experiences, you can experience mythological uh, figures and, and mythological realms of other cultures and so on. So I have written all these books sort of discussing these different insights and the, the changes that are required in our thinking. And uh, then in uh, 2001, in February, our house burned down. This one that we are sitting in right now. Oh my goodness. Uh, including my entire library, reference library and my research uh, records. And um, so it became very difficult to write the kinds of books I used to, where I need to, you know, go for quotes and do work of other people and, and do bibliographies and so on. Even with the internet, it becomes very, very difficult because they don't give you the, the here or the publisher. They just give you the name because they want you to buy the books from them. So right. you, don't, you don't get the information that you need as a writer from, from the internet. And so I thought, well, what should I do? Uh, and uh, so I wrote a book that I didn't need any uh, books for, uh, which was a book of, of stories, personal stories, the kinds of things that happened to Christina and myself, which were out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Things that, in principle, should not be happening if the universe were really the way it's described by materialistic science. This is why it's and you're talking about the Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm. Yes. This is why it's called When the Impossible Happens, because all those things in those stories are things that uh, people would think should not happen or could not happen. Certainly traditional uh, psychiatrists or scientists mm -hmm. would think they shouldn't be happening. So things that happened to us when we uh, had uh, encounters with some powerful shamans or spiritual teachers and uh, things that happen to people where they, for example, would have past life experiences uh, which brought some information that could be verified, actually, showing that the memory, you know, reaches far beyond individual life into the collective unconscious, into the karmic uh, uh, records and so on. Uh, strange synchronicities uh, happening. So, the, so that is this... Um, Books called When the Impossible Happens, Adventures in Non-Ordinary Realities. And then there's another book which uh, will come in August, uh, uh, and that's called um, The Ultimate Journey, uh, the 
consciousness and, and uh, the mystery of death, which is a kind of a comprehensive book of, of insights into different aspects of death and dying. You've written quite a bit about that. You've written about the Book of the Dead and past life experiences and out-of-body experiences. Yes, well, I actually wrote or co-wrote a book called The Human Encounter with Death, which was way back in 1987. But uh, this was when the, this whole area of what we now call thanatology, you know, the science of death, was just barely opening. Uh, that book came out at the time, or, or was in the galley-proof stage, when um, Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, came out, which was like the, you know, the opening of that whole field. And uh, so this is vastly up- updated. It's really comprehensive and up-to-date uh, and summarizes all these different things that we sort of learned about death and dying, and also the death-rebirth experience and the transformative and healing power of that experience. I wanted to go back to what your experience must have been like as a young psychiatrist starting to work with these psychedelic substances and the resistances that you came in, in contact and, and how you managed to retain uh, credibility. And I suppose this would be equivalent to the second perinatal birth stage. And you have four of the perinatal birth stages, uh, the first one being oceanic, and the second one is no exit, third one is the violence of the rebirth, and the, and the fourth is of freedom. So there must, it must have seemed uh, like no exit at, at a point. Well, there were, you know, there were two different aspects to it. Uh, one was just uh, what those experiences and observations were doing to me, because I had, of course, traditional training, right. scientific, psychiatric training, and in addition, training in a country which had a Marxist regime. So we really got the pure materialistic doctrine, as you can imagine. And there was no room for spirituality. No, no. I mean, there was a... You know, not not only was, not, was spirituality not accepted, but there was an active repression. Uh, anything spiritual was called opium of the masses, something oh, that right. takes people away from what's important, Marxist. which is the world revolution. You know, yeah. so uh, that um, part of it was just to come to terms with uh, uh, my own disbelief that something like this is possible, because it was violating somehow the, the worldview that I. Uh, developed living in in our culture and also being exposed to uh, Western science, and then of course the other you know uh, aspect of it was uh, the interface was the scientific community. Uh, so uh, in, as far as the first aspect is concerned, what what helped me of course were my own experiences. Right. You know, as long as you just hear about it or from other people. Uh, you try to explain it away and try to preserve the old way of uh, thinking about things. Uh, once you have the experience, you know that uh, you know the world is not the way it's described by current science. I wonder if there has been any any research done, and I know this. It's probably very difficult to work with these substances now in a actually a legal or governmentally sanctioned kind of way. Well, actually, there's now again beginning a kind of a renaissance. Really? Happening. Uh, there's a large study that uh, has begun in uh, Switzerland in a place called Burghölzli, which is the, the university clinic uh, for the, in, in Zurich, where Jung did all his major observations 
in psychotic patients, but also in the United States. There is now a study at uh, Harvard uh, using um, what's called MDMA, which yeah. is ecstasy, right. uh, with a cancer patients. There is another uh, study using psilocybin with, with cancer patients. So they, you know, there is uh, again beginning of the interest. They just uh, the uh, um, uh, scientists at Johns Hopkins now published several days ago a study where they were replicating uh, Walter Pankey's so-called Good Friday experiment, where he years ago when he was at, at Harvard in the very early years. Uh, did an experiment in the Harvard Chapel. It was a group of uh, theology students giving them, uh, half of them psilocybin, which is a LSD-like substance from the magic mushrooms, and half of them uh, placebo, which was uh, niacin. Uh, and uh, they, they found out that the experiences they were having were indistinguishable from the mystical experiences described in spiritual literature. And so the study was now replicated in a very, very sort of uh, solid way, and they came to the same conclusion. So that came now from from Johns Hopkins, you know, pretty completely independently. Yeah. So, so it's kind of returning. You know, I think it was a major, major uh, mistake, and also a um, you know great, great pity that. Uh, we lost these tools because of what happened when uh, it got out of hand and mm -hmm. people who were not qualified started sort of playing with it. And I would add that currently medical science has tools that we didn't have before, uh, like uh, functional MRI and sure. uh, can, other kinds of tools so we can, can look at brain activity. On a, whole, on a whole other level. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have to take another break, I'm sorry to say. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, uh, Stan Groff. Um, and your website, Stan? www.holotropic.com. Great. Well, we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Stan Groff. Stan, you and your wife, Christina, have developed this holotropic breathwork and that is, from what I understand, a technique of breathing that brings on an altered state of consciousness very similar to that of the psychedelic substances. It's a combination of breathing, it's sort of powerful evocative music, a certain kind of a bodywork that we're using also. And then, uh, you know, the sharing of the experiences. Uh, people use mandalas, drawings, paintings uh, of the experiences uh, that they sort of... Uh, share with the group. Oh, so it's done in a group? Well, you can do it individually, but it's a much better use of uh, the time of the therapist. You know, um, We have uh, <laughs> worked with really large groups. Uh, the largest group we worked with was 350 people oh uh, with 35 trained facilitators. Uh, but still the ratio was like one trained person with, uh, works with 10 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way it's done is that uh, uh, each uh, person in the group finds a partner and we do the breathing with half of the group and half of the group is what we call sitting. In other words, they are attending to the persons who are breathing. And you know, most of the problems are such that the, the untrained uh, sitters can, can really handle it. It's where people start moving into somebody else's place and you, know, you need a pillow or you know, bring water or a blanket and so on. 
And only when something's happening that's uh, special, that's out of the ordinary, then uh, the, the trained facilitators have to come in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a tremendous advantage to work with groups. First of all, you create a very powerful field where you know, a lot of things can happen. Um, there's the time, obviously the time element uh, that's, that's involved in the economic element. But also, um, it's very important that in the sharing, when people hear other people's stories, they, they sort of, it creates a context in which their own story suddenly appears different. You know, they, they had some thoughts or tendencies that they thought they were uh, unacceptable, they were sort of making them inhuman, or, and suddenly they hear other people talking about it. And sooner or later you develop a kind of a sense that we are all in it, together there's a well, problem that are all true. human and, yeah. and you know because somebody else has had that same yeah. experience yeah. that I have kind of thing particularly if it's related to things like aggression or sex and so on where people can come up with very very strange and distorted programs from their family family of origin and so on and, and so sharing it with other people it puts it in a whole new perspective and then would you speak to us about spiritual emergency. And I, when I first saw this term, the thought about chaos theory came to mind, about it's not only an urgent concern, but it's an emergent phenomena. It's something that is iterating. Um, can you talk to us about spiritual emergencies and how you and your wife have worked with those? Well, you see, what happened in the work with psychedelics and then also uh, with the breathwork that we are doing is... Uh, we came to the realization that the human psyche is much, much larger than uh, the current psychiatry presumes. The, the current model of the psyche is limited to what we would call a postnatal biography. You see, according to Freud, the newborn is a tabula rasa, is a, is a clean slate. There's nothing there uh, that precedes birth, including birth itself. We start kind of from scratch after we are born. And so what we become and the problems that we have are all anchored somehow in events from infancy, childhood, and then later in life. And uh, this, this work with non-ordinary states made us realize that the psyche is infinitely larger. And so I had to create this map which included the perinatal, which is, there's a record of births, the different stages, and then this uh, vast area that we call now uh, transpersonal. Uh, now we also saw that uh, when people were having experiences from these deeper levels of the psyche, if they were properly supported, they actually were healing and transformative. And many of them were the experiences uh, that when they emerged spontaneously, they would be seen by current psychiatry as uh, symptoms of uh, mental disease and people would be put on tranquilizers, they would get uh, hospitalized and so on, and they would basically carry a stigma of psychosis for the, less, the rest of their lives. Because it was a DSM-4 label and yeah, people Yeah, but if you, you know, in the way uh, psychiatry works today, uh, there's no category spiritual experience or mystical experience. So when people have these experiences, the idea is that those are manifestations of mental disease. And people need to be uh, need to be uh, treated uh, for them. As if it were a physiological imbalance. 
as if you know the the content of these experiences, the fan, frequently fantastic content, uh, is created by some pathological process that that invades the brain. Now, if you have this large cartography of the psyche, uh, the, your whole perspective changes because the question is not uh, how these experiences are created; those are the psyche per se. The the new question is why some people have to breathe for half an hour faster, or they have to take a couple hundred micrograms of LSD to get to these levels, whereas for other people, these experiences surface in the middle of everyday life without them doing anything, or, or maybe even fighting them. Yeah. So that's a whole other question. We, we don't have to explain you know, the content of the experiences. We just have to accept that the psyche is... is Enormous. It's you know Jung talked about anima mundi. Uh, psyche, our psyche is not something that's inside of our skull. The psyche permeates existence. It's part of part of nature, part of existence. So our individual psyche kind of participates in this large ocean of the anima mundi of the of the world mind. It's very similar to what you would find in all the major Eastern spiritual philosophies. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what you're speaking about, again, brings to mind a, uh, a diagram that you published in one of your books. Uh, I think it was The Discovery of Consciousness or something like that, and I have it. Adventure of Self-Discovery. Yes, Adventure of Self-Discovery, that was drawn by Marie-Louise von Franz that had a central circle but had all these ancillary stages that would come off of it. And it looked I, actually fractal to me. Very much so, yeah. This, this is um, actually in a book um, which I edited, and there is a, a, an article by Marie-Louise Franz, which is called The Transformed Berserk. And uh, this is her uh, idea what the, what the um, archetypal structure looks like, you know, where it looks somewhat like yeast, sort of. Uh, yes, bubbles upon have, bubbles you know, upon you know, bubbles. Sort of a you know, large formation that breaks into smaller formations, and then you have again outgrowth on, on each of those smaller circles. And the idea is that, for example, there is one large universal archetype, like the great mother goddess, and then uh, out of it are certain uh, culture-bound or, or historically defined um, variations, like Kibele and uh, Virgin Mary and uh, Kali and so on. And, and then, uh, you know, there could be uh, also specific uh, archetypes that appear again in, in variations, let's say, in uh, South America or in Europe and so on. And then it goes into smaller and smaller groups when it gets more specific kind of cultural manifestations, um, you know, until it sort of end, ends up in the, in the individual, individual psyche. That's the sort of the, the personal interface, if yeah, you will. Yeah, so there are the, the archetypes which are basically, uh, you know, abstract and very universal. And then, then as they go through this process of uh, manifestation, they are taking sort of uh, more and more specific uh, individual forms which are, which are culturally or historically mm -hmm. defined. Now, I'd like to move on because there's so many things that I'd like to talk with you about, but can you talk to us some more about your, your study of death and dying and out-of-body and near-death experiences? Well, my first uh, you know, notion that uh, death is very important in the psyche 
came when people started reliving uh, some kind of life-threatening events from their biography, like somebody was reliving near near drowning situation or situation where they had uh, diphtheria and almost choked to death and so on, or some kind of a life-threatening accident and so on. But then uh, there was much more focus even on death when the process uh, of regression reached biological birth. And I realized that there is a powerful encounter with death that we have in the, in the birth process itself. Mm-hmm. And this is First of all, if nothing the matrix else, three that we're talking well, about. Well, there, there are, I think, two dimensions. One is that we, no matter how easy or difficult birth is, uh, what happens is that the, the fetus dies it's as, a, as a kind of a water-bound aquatic kind the of a creature. The heart actually changes from a two-chamber to a four-chamber. Yeah, I mean, the whole anatomy. So then uh, you have a you have a basically an aquatic animal living in the amniotic fluid, being nourished through the umbilicus, and and the metabolic products are disposed, you know, through the umbilicus and so on, and then coming out of the birth canal, suddenly you become an air breathing uh, creature. You have to open up your lungs. You completely rebuild your anatomy. So in some sense, there's a death of the fetus and emergence of a completely different creature. But then uh, you have a specific encounter with death that depends on how difficult the birth is, which is the passage himself, uh, the passage itself. Where the you know uh, the situation can be so serious that the mother dies, the the child dies, and so on. So there is a there is a presence, very significant presence of death in birth. We taste kind of death to different degrees in the very process of coming into this world. And it's very deeply recorded in our unconscious and has tremendous, tremendous uh, implications for our life in health and disease. It's a source, you know, of very difficult uh, uh, emotions and very difficult physical feelings that can develop into emotional and psychosomatic problems and so on. Uh, it leads to a certain kind of a life strategy. And we're going to have to take, actually, a quick break here. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking to my guest, Stan Groff. And Stan, your website again? It's www.holotropic.com, H-O-L-O-T-R-O-P-I-C.com. Great. We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and you're listening to Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Stan Groff. And Stan, before the break, we were talking about the existence of death in birth and how deeply that affects a person. And something that you had talked to me about or talked to the group about in a recent intensive that you held with Rick Tarnas was a coax. Can you tell us what a coax is and how it's useful? Yes, uh, well, coax stands for um, a coax system, uh, stands for a system of condensed experience. It was one of the very interesting findings in working with non-ordinary states is that uh, uh, emotionally important events are recorded in uh, the unconscious not in a kind of a mosaic of sort of unrelated elements, but that they form certain kinds of uh, dynamic constellations which are multi-layered. Uh, for example, you can have a uh, choking coax which would include different situations 
from various periods of your life when uh, there was some interference with your breathing. Let's say we talked about the near drowning when you were seven, then maybe being uh, repeatedly choked by your older brother or sister. Uh, then maybe at the time when you were two you had uh, whooping cough or, or diphtheria where there was a lot of choking. So that would be a coex system, system of condensed experience. And then I found out that each of these coex systems with the, with the biographical levels would be then anchored in um, a certain aspect of birth. So, for example, there is choking in birth. So there would be a very natural uh, connection of that, of that kind of choking coex with birth. But it doesn't even end there, and it goes into the transpersonal. You could have a past life experience of being strangled or being hanged and so on. Or uh, there could be connection to uh, some situations where, let's say, somebody is attacked by a boa constrictor. and it's mm-hmm. So the coex system sort of uh, has a certain theme, you know, central theme, specific emotion, specific physical sensations. And uh, it repeats with certain variations. Uh, and some of those layers are coming from biographies, some of them from birth, and some of them go... So if we the, continue to have similar life. sorts of experiences and going, well, wait a minute, this just came out of the blue. It really didn't. If one looks deep into a potential coax condensed experience matrix. Yeah, there could be you know, many, many different coax systems. For example, um, there could be a system of memories of situations where you found women to be unreliable, mm-hmm. you, abandoning you, starting somewhere from birth when you, you lost the connection with the mother's womb and then maybe a, some kind of abandonment in uh, childhood, some kind of a rejection. So it leads to generalization. And, so leads and then, to then maybe, a, maybe a nanny, unreliable nanny, and then... It, it can go uh, through a series of uh, erotic relationships when uh, women sort of left you. And what's very interesting that uh, it seems that only in the beginnings of the coex, we are the victims. Once the coex becomes part of you, we might actually become instrumental in recreating new layers. Oh, when we had, for example, a lot of lot of disappointing experiences with women, we can act in a new relationship in such a way that we set ourselves up for oh. another rejection. You see, but, it's our own behavior that, that contributes to But then to being the mindful of that, you can kind of head that off at the pass, as it were. Well, uh, you know, part of the therapeutic process is, of course, for you to get the insight into it and get ahead of it so that uh, you're not being run And if it does happen to show up, that's the same old pattern, you go, oh, well, now that's the same old pattern that was showing up, and I don't have to act it out. Uh, And I don't have to uh, project it on someone either. We're coming to the end of our time here, and I'd like to ask you about the work that you've been doing with Rick Tarnas, who has just written a book called Cosmos and Psyche, and uh, the work you've done together in Esalen, and I'm going to have Rick on the show yeah, at a future date, and I'd like to have you both come on the show to talk about your work together. Talk to us about the work you've done with Rick. Well, in a sense, you know, it's the kind of, in my understanding, a cutting edge of this work, but also the most controversial, because it adds to the controversy which is associated with psychedelics and non-ordinary states themselves, 
and the controversy associated with astrology. So those two kind of combine. It's quite amazing that the California Institute of Integral Studies uh, was kind of open-minded enough to let us teach a course. Uh, but it's quite amazing. Rick is uh, an extraordinary psychologist and uh, brilliant, brilliant astrologer. And so we have been looking now for more than a quarter of a century at these correlations where people have certain experiences in these non-ordinary states that it actually reflects the, uh, the archetypes of the tra- transiting planets, the planets that are their natal chart. And the natal chart is so important because of the transitional nature of death and birth. Death and birth. Yeah. But this will really require an oh, extra yeah. program because we would have to, oh, yeah. you know, we would have to deal with all the objections that people have, all the, all the misunderstandings and mm-hmm. distortions uh, where people know astrology from what they find in, you know, daily newspaper. What do you expect if you are a Capricorn? What's going to happen to you next week? So Rick's, Rick's book, his Cosmos and Psyche, is amazing because it shows that through centuries, you know, the, uh, certain significant things were happening again and again with the same kinds of transits, let's say wars. So or, you're or talking about cultural coaxes there, is that right? Well, the, you know, astrology can be used on individuals, of course. It can be used on countries. It can be used in, uh, his, you know, historical periods and so on. Mm-hmm. Those are just uh, really following somehow the same principles, this archetypal thinking connected somehow to uh, the movements of the planets. And it requires a major, major change in your thinking when you don't think about the universe anymore as this sort of uh, mechanical supermachine that somehow created itself. But you, st- you have to think about it as, a, you know, as an organic system that's permeated uh, and, and created by... Uh, superior intelligence that we can't even imagine in our... But nonetheless that we are uh, definitely a direct part of and participate in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the most interesting thing because we feel that what happened since the Copernican Revolution, that somehow the status of human being has been sort of increasingly reduced, you know, from us being the center of the universe to being this sort of insignificant speck, uh, sort of... uh, you know, in this infinite universe. And, uh, of course, in a sense, uh, the astrological perspective doesn't change anything from in terms of what we can measure and, and what we can weigh. It still remains. But uh, what it shows that that we are a center of meaning. Oh, I hadn't thought sense. about it that way. And it's very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very freeing. So. Yeah. But sort of if everything that happens to you all the experiences, all the uh, all the events, and so on, are systematically correlated with the movements of the planets. It sort of indicates that, in some strange way, the universe cares, and you know that there is a there's a law and an order, and you're you're part of your meaningful part of that order. Mm-hmm. An equal so it's a very very kind of an exciting uh, uh, discovery. I think it's, in my understanding, the most powerful somehow uh, argument you know supporting the idea that this is an intelligent universe that there is superior intelligence that's responsible mm-hmm. for for creating and maintaining you know 
what well, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop. And, and uh, can you tell us what your website is again, please? It's uh, www.holotropic.com. H O L O. Thank you so much for talking with us, Stan. Thank you so much for talking with us, Stan. Again, it's wonderful to be. It's, it's great to, to be interviewed by somebody. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. No, I'm Which very much looking forward happen. to talking with you further on this show. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, Stan Groff. And if you'd like to go on the web, we currently now have podcasts. Uh, you can find my website at www.attunement, A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T. That's attunement.biz, B-I-Z. I'm Anthony Wright, and thanks for listening, and see you next time.